0: hello and welcome back to season eight of prophetic voices preaching and teaching beloved community a podcast from the episcopal church's office of reconciliation justice and creation care where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice i'm your host reverend shaniqua staff officer for racial reconciliation and i'm so glad you could join us in this episode of prophetic voices we'll be discussing the advent one lectionary for liturgical year b Our exquisite guests this week are the esteemed Sarah Shipman from Topeka, Kansas, who is the Director of Operations at Episcopal Migration Ministries. Sarah is a seminarian and lifelong student who enjoys reading and traveling with her family. The Reverend Canon Deborah Royals, who serves the Canon for Native American Ministry in the Diocese of Arizona, the Vicar of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Tucson, and is developing the Four Winds Indigenous New Church Community. Debbie is Indigenous Pasquayaki, a registered nurse, a mom, a grandma, and is passionate about living out her call to serve the spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical wellness of all God's people. And last but not least, the Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, who serves as the rector of St. Anne Episcopal Church in Westchester, Ohio, and a board member of the Center for Deep Green Faith. Phil has interests in writing, contemplative spirituality, and creation care. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to be guests on Prophetic Voices. Uh, It's great to have you here. Let's just start. What does Advent represent to you and what's important to keep in mind this Advent?
1: I think it's interesting to me that Advent has often had a lot of penitential language in it. And it's so counter-cultural to our Native ways of looking at things. Um, Seasonally and culturally, you know, we go inside, there's a lot of reflection. And so I tend to lean more towards now the anticipation or the preparedness that Advent invites us into?
2: The phrase that came to mind for me was breathless anticipation. And the best way I can describe it, well, for me, it's that moment when I am having a good cry and I've taken in as much of the pain and suffering as I can. And your breath catches and you know that exhale is coming That is the peace and the understanding and the, in in the case of Advent, the incarnation. But that expectation when you are holding tension and a release is coming.
3: Sarah, it's interesting you say that. The tension between the way the world is and, and the way the world can and should be, that's exactly what I was reflecting on as I was thinking about Advent too. When I think about that tension between those two realities, I think that sort of living in that tension, that's, a re- that's something that we have to do all year round and Advent is the season where we perhaps name it and f- focus on it in a particular way. And I think that tension that we live in is one that is, if we're not careful, that can lead us into a place of despair. We can focus so much on the gap between what is and what could or should be that we could say, well... <laughs> this is just too much to bear and and the world disappoints us in, in repeated ways. And yet I think the, the call and the promise of Advent is to let that tension be a creative tension, one that says, no, this isn't actually the end of the story. And the ways in which we dream of a world that is yet to be fully realized is a source of inspiration, is a source of hope and promise and excitement. So that we are, you know, back to that word anticipation Debbie used. You know that we're not resting in a place of despair; we're resting in a place of creative tension and hope. Hmm.
1: I really like that too, Phil and Sarah. What you said is so moving. I think especially of this particular lectionary beginning of Advent is always a huge challenge, and it really does reflect of what was and what is coming because we move from, you know, the celebration of Christ the King the Sunday before, and then suddenly, you know, God's not there, Jesus is not there anymore, (laughs) you know, and how to actually allow ourselves, you know, like you said, uh, Sarah, that breathless anticipation, just, you know, to let it out and allow ourselves to get into that spirit of anticipation and of preparedness. And really thinking a lot about hope and how, when we do talk about how the world has been and how it can be, especially what you said, Bill, that seems to me like to be the whole heart of Advent.
0: This year, I was kind of thinking about it. You know, the the Advent is the beginning of the church year. And one of the lessons I think we can learn from it, you know, because usually you think of New Year's, that's always like a celebration, right? But the Christmas is a celebration. Advent Reminds us, I think, that it's important to kind of take a breath before we do things and take a moment to reflect and take a moment to anticipate and take a moment to plan. So much we we like are doing all this stuff last minute sometimes. And I think Advent gives us a thought or a, a time to think about that. Throughout Advent, there's a lot of lightness and darkness metaphors that we hear. And um, I know sometimes those have been used or misinterpreted to perpetuate ideas of shadism or colorism or racism. How can we prevent this or how might we transform that or change it?
3: I think this is a conversation that the church is rightly having and, and needs to continue having both to address those issues of systemic racism that you just lifted up, Shaniqua, but also because I think sort of speaking of and interpreting language of light and dark in this sort of very clear-cut binary way is just so incredibly dull and theologically uninteresting. That darkness is bad, negative, and that the light is good and positive, and that that's the way that we should sort of construct our theological imagination. One of the best ways for me, as I've thought about how to engage themes of light and dark, which are obviously throughout scripture, in which we can't really avoid, that we can't escape them entirely, is to just lean into the creative possibilities of the dark, all of the ways in which darkness is a metaphor and a space for possibility, for generativity, for mystery. Mm. There's a whole ancient mystical tradition within Christianity, uh, you know, it, and and it ties into what theological terms is called apophatic theology, which is just a, is sort of the way of negation, of emptiness. And a lot of those writers, they talk about things in terms of darkness, but it's a positive darkness because it's a release of our certainty. It's a release of all of the things that we assume that we know and the ways that we have assumed have always worked. It's a resting in the not knowing that provides a spaciousness for us to live into the possibility of a new thing that God is doing in our midst.
2: Hmm.
3: Going back to what we were saying before about Advent being a season of exhale, of waiting, of reflection, I think Advent is a season where we can celebrate The darkness, honestly, we can celebrate the coming of the darkness really through the natural order of things, but we can celebrate the the rest that can signify, but also the creative imaginative possibilities that can sometimes only come to us in the dark when all the distractions and the brightness of the world around us have subsided. So I think there's so much richness to unpack in these metaphors that can be really life giving and positive and not play into tired tropes about darkness being a negative.
2: I would agree with that, Phil. And when I thought about it, God had the opportunity to dismiss darkness, but he kept both dark and light as necessary for growth and for survival. We need those periods of rest and mystery. And light can occasionally be painful. Just think about sunburns or those movie images of the big bright light shining in the suspect's face to be painful enough to get them to confess to whatever misdeeds they're looking at. But I'm much more interested in the twilight Mm. and in that dawn and dusk and the space in between. And, you know, growing up in the Kansas Prairie, that's the most beautiful time of day when you're in between dark and light, whether the sun's setting or the sun rising. And those are the spaces where most of life happens not in the full brightness of light or the full darkness of night, but in that in-between. Again, we we talked about that Advent is sort of that in-between waiting space too. Rethinking about how we don't pit darkness and light against each other, but talk about all of the the spaces in between.
1: I love that, Sarah. (laughs) The dualism, right, that exists in the world is uh, so evident when we start talking about darkness and light. I can still remember it actually happened during the time when I was in seminary that Barbara Brown Taylor wrote a book, and I read it. It's called Learning to Walk in the Dark. I get teary even thinking about it because it was a redemptive moment that I felt like for the first time I was reading someone who had respect in the church in a way of saying that, Darkness is a place of sacredness, right? So I think about two things, Sarah. When you said about the twilight, you know, that's a time of prayer for us. We get up in the morning and pray just before the sun rises, and the same in the evenings, just as the sun is going down and darkness has not come upon us yet. And when I pray, you know, we're referring to that time of prayer or that space of prayer as the Yoania, the enchanted world, or maybe what in uh, Christian terms might be called heaven, uh, that we are closest to that. And then the other passage, of course, that I think needs to be part of the redemption of this dualism of light and darkness to remind ourselves that we also say darkness and light are the same to God, right? They are both alike. Mm. And there isn't a separation of the two, that this was Someone else uh, saying that they were different.
0: When I've preached on it, I've talked about it. I think, Debbie, you'll probably be very familiar with this, but like darkness is a time during the year when like it's about rejuvenation and renewal, and it's our time to tell stories, and it's our time to share all those things, like be generous and be sharing. And it's also a time where we we have sweat in the dark and that's, you know, a time for renewal again in a different way and cleansing and stuff. So I think about that too. It represents being inside your mother's womb when you're in a a sweat lodge. And so of course, all those things are good, right?
1: I say that too, Shaniqua. I oftentimes will uh, tell people about the sacredness and the darkness of, and what can happen in a sweat lodge. And I remind us that we often close our eyes when we pray, because we're going into that space of, is to be close to God.
3: Hmm. I'll also chime in and just add a, you know, I'm an Episcopal priest. So here's a plug for the Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> you know, for all people who um, have access to a, a Book of Common Prayer or for whom that is sort of part of their language and practice of their faith, the daily office of the Book of Common Prayer is a really foundational mm. and straightforward to engage these questions. If you pray morning prayer and evening prayer, there's a lot of language around light and dark and twilight, the Vesper light. All these things are embedded right there in the tradition, even in the BCP. Hmm. And this would be a great season, I think, for folks who feel so called to investigate that if they haven't before and really understand how the rhythm of prayer and liturgy is in alignment with the rhythms of the natural world and that it's actually calling us to be in a particular form of harmony and communion with these cycles of light and dark and the shades in between. Mm. Beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about
0: Isaiah. I know Isaiah is quoted a lot in Advent. Specifically today, this passage is being written on behalf of a people who are feeling like they've been treated very unjustly, and Isaiah is sort of saying, oh, I wish that you would come, God, and do these things. What does it mean for us to be the work of God's hand or what does it mean to be clay and it makes me wonder about predestination. What are your thoughts about that? In what way
3: does it make you think about predestination?
0: So if we're God's clay, that means God's doing it to us and then we don't have autonomy to do it for ourselves. And so I'm like it, that's that's where my mind goes. But obviously Not that I'm God, but when I've made clay things, you know, (laughs) sometimes I'll make something and how it comes out of the kiln is not how I put it in. Or even, you know, when you put the glaze on, it might be one color, but then when it comes out of the kiln, it might be brilliant red and it looked ugly when you put it in or whatever.
3: So one thing that I noticed in the in the line about clay and potter uh, on this read through was it never actually talks about a finished product. Hmm. What I thought was so fascinating, it's like it's less about we are a glazed and fired bowl created by God or vessel of some kind. And instead, that the emphasis is on our participation in this dynamic creative process between the artist who is God and the artwork. Who is us and who is all of creation to me, because the relationship between art and artist is a much more sort of life-giving, creative, always unfinished mm. sort of dialogue between form and the one who forms it. I think that to me is more evocative of a liberative understanding of that relationship versus a, a very sort of fixed, solid, rigid, you know, you must be this one particular way. Mm.
1: Yeah, so when I think about clay, I think about the unfinished product, not the finished product or the things that come, but, and to stay in that uh, formative place rather than the finished product, I think is also part of the uh, message here because of this reading appearing during Advent. And to accept also that uh, God is not the only one forming, I think, Svanikwa, you know, this is I think one of the messages that I want to remind people is that we are all impacted by things people say to us and the things that we say to them, the news that we listen to, the music that we listen to, all of the outside impact on us is forming us. And if we allow ourselves to be exposed to that, it's going to have an effect on us. You know, you mentioned um, In the Isaiah reading, especially, you know, about transgression and uh, God hiding God's self from the people and that that's when all wrong happened. I do think that when we move away, you know, Phil, you mentioned um, the daily offices, you know, the routines of spiritual practice. When we move away from intentionally living the life that God intended for us, we are easily... Molded or formed by things that may or may not result in us continuing to be that finished product of what God intended for us to be. So that's the the thought that comes to my mind when I read these. I I resist talking a lot about the sort of um, blaming kind of language that appears in these Isaiah passages in this particular line of this chapter. Because I don't think that it's helpful for us to point fingers, but I do think that it's helpful for us to talk about how we are impacted, and if we think things that are unfriendly or unkind, we ourselves are becoming more unkind as well as the person who or whatever we're criticizing.
2: Hmm.
1: Along those lines, debbie, when i when I looked at this
2: passage and and thought about the malleability of clay and the absence of God, and was that, I really focused in on, it, it seems more often than not, that it is less God's absence, and more our failure to notice God, and our failure to look for God, mm. and seek that out, and you're right, that outside influences have such an impact. And when you take it back to the, the clay and, and pottery metaphor, you know, I, I have done pottery on a wheel once. And just shifting my weight in my body as I'm trying to work with the clay completely changes the outcome. A sneeze is going to change the way your pot looks. So every single thing has an impact on that malleability that is people in this case and if we fail to notice and we fail to look for evidence of our creator then we we do start to experience an absence of our creator
0: Hmm. have you ever felt like god was hiding her face from you and do you think that god might be hiding her face from somebody right now
1: I don't. I think that we hide ourselves from God. Hmm. We fail to see God. Um, As Sarah just said, the evidence of God all around us is so obvious in so many ways, and we can either choose to see that or not. You know, I know we'll jump into this more in the uh, gospel reading, but, you know, I got to thinking about how much creation language is in all of these readings, this particular lectionary section and the contrast between earthquakes and eclipses and the earth and the end of heaven and the calling of the elect from the four winds and all of the kind of language that has been built into the readings, even in the Isaiah reading and going into the Psalm. You know, there's so much um, reference to creation because that links us, right, to God because that is part of God is in creation and us hiding ourselves is us denying our part in being that part of God's creation that we are.
3: Hmm. I also don't believe in a God who hides their face from creation. However, I also, I acknowledge that the, the language around the hidden face of God, God turning their face away, it's an evocative way, I think, of speaking about the mystery of suffering and grief. And that people can feel in very deep and hard places of their life, whether individually or in a community, that they feel lost and that they feel unseen and forgotten in any number of ways. Obviously, I, as a parish priest, I walk alongside people who are grieving every day of the week and that felt sense of absence can be overwhelming. And I think the grief that emanates up from this passage of Isaiah from a people who have been subjugated and scattered uh, and had their homeland taken away from them. I think you can hear that, but I think it's one thing to hear that and honor that felt sense of absence while also saying that the truth, the holistic truth, is that that absence is not actually real. God's presence is always there, and there may be moments where we do not feel it. We cannot see it or perceive it. But the goodness of God and the solidarity of God, especially with the ones who suffer and are at the margins, I think encourage us to rem- remember and to retell all of the stories of the way that, even through those incredibly difficult seasons, God has continued to show up and do what God does. And so I think in Advent and throughout the year, that's sort of a reminder that we are called back to to both name the grief, name the hardship that is true for so many, and yet to also seek and reaffirm that redemptive presence of God, even in those very hard places.
1: One of the notes, Phil, that I wrote down about these lessons was exactly um, using these lessons as a metaphor for grief and loss, right? That uh, when we talk about darkness and light, uh, when we talk about the hidden face of God, right, when the absence is there, as you said, both in grief and in loss and in hardship, Um, you know, the struggle that is there. I think that is absolutely something that could be brought into the conversation for these lessons in particular for our congregations.
0: I think in my own life, there have been times where I felt like God had forgotten me. I think especially like when I got kicked out of the house and was homeless as a teenager, I remember that was a time where I felt very, I probably could relate a lot to Isaiah at that time. and But I also think at the same time, one of the things, and I've preached on this when I've talked about the shoot of Jesse, which isn't in this reading, but sometimes you have to get cut down to a stump to really sort of be able to let go of everything. And when you've completely let go of everything, then it allows you to construct a new thing or see God in a different way or hear God in a different way. And the times where I've really been transformed have been those times when it's been like, the worst kind of after, after the worst or when I experience as the worst that like rock bottom experience and then being able to,
3: to change. Yeah. Or you have to be reduced back to a lump of clay so that God can form a new thing in you. Right? Yes. There's the beauty of it is that the work is never finished. God's work is never finished in us. Even when all of the outward forms that we have come to rely upon are taken away from us and we're reduced back to our essence God is still going to get their hands back in and work with that and bring something beautiful from it. So what does it
0: mean that we are all God's people? That was one of the things I really like. Uh, it does not consider we are all your people.
1: Of course, you know, I think that we can't deny that so often all has not really included everyone. Hmm. You know, and to say all and to mean it really requires that we allow ourselves to acknowledge who's still not at the table. Mm -hmm. You know, how we are still exclusive, even though we call ourselves inclusive and welcoming. You know, and the truth of the matter is we probably should call ourselves more exclusive and tell the truth, because without acknowledging that, how can we acknowledge who's not at the table? I worry that we say all and we think that we mean all, but we haven't worked through all the exclusions yet that would really make us all. I think
3: in the context of this particular Isaiah passage, Isaiah is speaking to God uh, on behalf of a nation of people that has been referenced earlier, has been scattered, has been sent into exile, the temple has been destroyed. They are a people who are not gathered in any particular way and yet are feeling a a sense of longing and desire to be reconnected with who they are and where they come from. You know, in its original context, I think there's a there's a, a sense of lament and longing that that comes up through these words. We are all God's people wherever we might be, even though we are not standing united in one place. We long that you would not forget us, that you would not overlook us, that you would remember us and bring us home. And I think that is true for all of creation, ultimately. The cry of Isaiah and the cry of Israel, ultimately, becomes the cry of all the world, both human and non-human. And the idea that we are all God's people is something while in practice, Debbie is absolutely right. We we do not practice that sense of inclusivity uh, in any particularly perfect way in any particular institution. And yet we can affirm the underlying reality of our longing that it might be so, that God would ultimately draw all people and all things to themselves, and we pursue that path of reconciliation and reunion through the love that we know in Jesus. But I think we can also say that that desire and that longing goes beyond even just the Christian tradition, and actually encompasses all things and all people from all walks of life and all creatures, uh, you know, and all living things on this planet. That all of those are belong to God ultimately, and are loved by God and will, in the end, be reconciled to God. And if you don't preach a gospel that is expansive and inclusive of all people and all created things, then I think we're not actually preaching the gospel.
2: One of the things I kept coming back to is we are all longing for connectedness and a feeling of being in unity and in relationship with one another and with God and with all of creation. And unfortunately, therein lies our problem because we, we start to build connection with people. And in order to continue that connection and feel like we belong, we are necessarily excluding those who aren't part of that so that we ourselves aren't excluded. Mm. We try so hard to belong to a group that we begin to identify that group in a way that excludes others. And so it is hopeful that there will be reconciliation of all of creation, but we can't do it ourselves. We're our own worst enemies when it comes to trying to build that connectivity in in some situations.
0: I was thinking as you were talking about the... Lakota phrase Mitako yasin, which is the we are all related. The we in there, I mean, Isaiah doesn't say we are all your people. He doesn't specify what the we is. But I was thinking about we as like not just people, but like plants and animals and all of creation in that way. So if we are all God's people, what is our call as Christians then in how we treat others? Or what is our call as Christians to be the hands and feet of Christ? Or what does that look like practically for us as people or as Congregations.
1: I think what Phil said earlier is really important for us, like the sayings in our language, also Shaniqua, that you know, when we talk about all things being brought into their perfection, that God's intention is for all connectedness, right? And we talk about interconnectedness of community in our uh, native communities that are interdependence on each other rather than independence. Which is, of course, in the dominant world that we live in, what's held up as a value. That, you know, in order for us to have all things in God's perfection as God intended them, then there has to be an acknowledgement that unless we are also not just, you know, caring for the poor and the sick and the lonely and what seems obvious to us as Christians, but to also be making decisions about how we. Uh, Vote, how we care for the earth, how we uh, make choices to shop or to go in the car or not to go in the car. You know, all of those things need to be intentional and we need to be examining them according to what is the best for everyone, not the best for ourselves. And I think that uh, level of humility and unselfishness is a struggle for us as Christians. Um, Sarah, I really love what you said about the, you know, in the trying to so hard to belong to something that we become exclusive. That is just so awesome and true that, you know, just kind of threw me into a whole different way of thinking of that passage. I love that. I'm making notes so that when I write my sermon for this (laughs) Sunday, I'm like ready to rock. I'm going to be stealing, and but I will give you credit, Sarah, I promise.
2: <laughs> it's baffling to me because, you know, you read that the U.S. Surgeon General has written a report that there is an epidemic of loneliness in the United States, and we want to belong to other people. We want to have connection, and yet we can't figure out the right way to do that. And I think that goes along with what are we called to do? How are we called to be God's people in the world today? And it's active inclusion. It's active loving. It's getting away from that idea of individuality and that I do all of these things myself, that you were talking about, Debbie, and that everything is connected to another and when we recognize that and we recognize that we are all but a small part of God's creation we can get one step closer
0: so let's move over to the gospel there's a lot in here but one of the things that the beginning just it says in those days after that suffering where do you see suffering in our world right now
1: where don't we see suffering in this world right now oh my you know i think uh, Shaniqua about how often we We'll mention in the prayers of the people, for instance, something that is in the news and that our complacency or contribution to the suffering is that they get their moment in the spotlight and then, you know, it's gone. It's lost into sort of out there, but not really. There are a lot of things that I think that we can talk about on on suffering. But Sarah, I think what you just mentioned about loneliness, especially post-pandemic and the attitudes of people, you know, even some of our folks in my particular situation in our congregation who've never come back to church and they don't see themselves as needing to come back to church. And I wonder how they're feeling that sense of belonging or that sense of community. I often say, you know, it's really easy to be a faithful person if you go out and. Uh, find a cave and live in it by yourself. you know, but the harder job is for us to come together and be in the world and to touch God in each other, to see God in each other. That suffering that that I think exists is also what's causing sort of a numbness because there's so much suffering. Mm. that it's difficult for people to really engage with it because it just seems like it's almost overwhelming.
3: I'm thinking too about a nuanced distinction between suffering and pain. Mm. I think that the pain of being alive, the pain of our mortality, of our finitude, and the pain that we inflict upon one another is so pervasive and has been, you know, throughout our collective memory. And yet suffering to me, the, the idea of suffering, bespeaks not not just a sort of experience of pain, but also an experience of meaninglessness attached to that pain.
0: Mm. That
3: there is no purpose and no hope to be found in the midst of pain. And that that sort of holistic experience of, of meaninglessness is what truly Causes us to suffer when we experience pain. And so it's interesting to me in this gospel that Jesus says, in those days after that suffering, then this sort of eschatological consummation of all things reveals itself in very dramatic fashion. It's almost a saying that makes me think of a transition from meaninglessness into the revelation of ultimate meaning and purpose. That Jesus is here in our midst and was incarnate as the son of God, clearly not to take away all the pain of being alive because we still experience it. But the promise is that even in the midst of that pain, there will be beauty and there will be meaning that will be wrested from it, which is not the same as saying that all pain and suffering is, is like part of God's plan and is a good thing. That's definitely not a not a life-giving theological proposition in my view. But nonetheless, that our pain is not a road to meaninglessness, but that in fact, God will arise even from the midst of our pain to transform our suffering into solidarity, to transform it into understanding, to transform it into wisdom and possibility. To me, that paints this picture of this sort of apocalyptic scene in the gospel in a very hopeful light. This is not so much just about a second coming that's come to inflict a condemnatory judgment upon creation, but to actually liberate creation from its suffering and to say, after all that you have been through, through all the endless ages upon ages, I have come to give meaning and purpose and hope at last. And all things will be drawn into that meaning and that purpose and that hope.
2: I would be remiss at Episcopal Migration Ministries for not mentioning the tie between the passage in Isaiah that was written after the exile and the reference to all of the suffering to mention that, you know, at the end of 22, uh, 2022, there were 108.4 million people who had been forcibly displaced from their homes. It's a year-over-year increase of 19 million people, which is the largest increase that we've had since they've been taking these these statistics. And so to think about the the post-exile period of Isaiah and the promise that comes in Mark for what happens after all of this suffering, but to remember in this time of Advent, all of those, not unlike Jesus, who were forced from their homes for a variety of reasons. So when you ask, who do we see suffering in the world right now? It's those 108 million people.
0: That reminded me of a time, like when I was younger, we would sometimes have people who'd come and stay with us. And like, we have a responsibility for hospitality in our culture. And so they were refugees in the sense not necessarily from other countries generally but you know from other places and it was always interesting like i might have been upset that you know i had to share my room with somebody or you know whatever it might be but it was always neat because I always learned something new or I could make friends. And it like ended some of the loneliness that I had living by myself with my grandparents. Well, I wasn't by myself, but you know what I mean? Like all the other people were adults and I was a kid. And so having somebody else there was always fun. Cause it's a new person to play with a new person to play a game with. And I just, you know, we talked about loneliness as one way of suffering and here's this other folks who are suffering and there could be a potential connection between the two. I'm wondering where it talks about the elect. It says, I will gather the elect from the four winds, uh, or send out his angels, gather his elect from the four winds. Who are Jesus's elect or God's elect? What do you think that means? And is that something we even should be worried about?
1: Well, I think we should be worried about using it in a way that excludes people. Mm. You know, I think this goes along with the all God's children kind of language, the elect, you know. and. Certainly from the perspective of Native people, how often not being elect has been used to describe who we are, that we didn't have the privilege of having a relationship with God because in whoever's eyes, the colonizer thought that we had no relationship with God, that our relationship with God wasn't a valid relationship. so. You know, I think if we talk about God's elect in any way that isn't all of God's creation is God's elect, then we are participating in the exclusiveness um, that we talked about earlier with the all language. I do love that it's talking about coming from the four winds, though, because doesn't that, if nothing else, symbolize for us that? All inclusion, right, from every direction, from every place, coming together into God's presence. And I think that that's something I can get behind. The Four Winds congregation that we're forming, of course, this has a history in the Episcopal Church that uh, calling our native communities four winds for on purpose because it brings together people from many la- languages, nations, tribes, cultures, etc.
3: Yeah, to Debbie's point, I mean, the concept of election and the elect has a really loaded history in Christian theology, certainly. The imagery that Jesus is using in this passage from Mark is drawing on, I believe, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, uh, but is also not, not just directly sort of restating it word for word, is sort of taking a piece of it and reapplying it to his own vision of the culmination of all things. What strikes me about it is exactly that, that it doesn't really describe who the elect are. It leaves it quite open and ambiguous in this passage, at least. And so to me, absolutely, we should not be drawing up any kind of dividing lines between who our understanding of the the elect are or are not, because that's not really our place to know or understand. All we can really do is, Respond to the call of God, the call to embody care and mercy and compassion and all of the things that Jesus embodies and trust that, you know, we will we will participate in this culmination of all things in a way, according with God's mercy. I love the idea, too, that, you know, gathered from the winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. To me, that sounds like no one is left behind. That sounds like even the people who seem maybe in this life and this time to have been utterly lost and forgotten and rejected will all be gathered together to behold the glory of God in the end, and then all things will be made known.
2: Yeah, I love that, Phil, I, because when you, when you read from the four winds, the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, and then you consider it in light of the life and work of Jesus and the people he connected with, then yeah, to my reading, no one is left out of the elect.
0: I love the part about the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven, because I think that's like this reminder of like the spirit world. I know in, in Lakota culture, we don't really have a concept of hell. We actually had to invent a word for evil too, because we didn't have that. But um, <laughs> we believe that when someone dies, they go to the spirit world and every, everybody goes there. And so like when you die, your ancestors come and like take you there, like, because they already know the way. So they'll come back to help you and guide you on the way. And I just envision like all of my relatives being there. And the only other time that I get to experience that is at communion, right? Because then it's like, I'm at the rail, they're all at the rail, or sometimes they stand, who knows. But, you know, they're all there with me. My grandma's there next to me. And it's like one of the few times where that can happen as well. So everyone thought that Jesus was coming in their own time, right? And in there it says, truly tell you this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. What do you think our call is while we wait for this second coming? How should we keep awake? And what does that look like for you or for our church?
3: For me, I think the imagery that he uses immediately after that line, the section that concludes this gospel passage, sort of illustrates in a way how I think what our posture might look like as people and as a church. You know, this idea of the household waiting for the head of the house to return from a journey and not so that they too can leave on the journey and sort of escape the house, but so that they're basically preparing the house as a warm and welcoming place, keeping the lamps lit, keeping a feast ready on the table, whatever, however you want to imagine that, but it's really a posture of anticipatory hospitality. That's a lovely image, at least for me, of what our efforts should resemble in this in-between time as we wait for whatever it means for Jesus to come again that we too should be cultivating spaces of anticipatory hospitality where the lamps are lit and the feast is prepared Mm. and we are building a more gracious and hospitable and welcoming world all around us that sustains life because Jesus is coming home to us not to take us away on some other journey to some other realm but in fact as as our faith teaches us and the power of the resurrection to bring forth a new creation here and now on this earth and so it's our mandate and our responsibility to care for this earth to care for one another so that whenever he comes however he comes and none of us knows the day or the hour that we are ready not just to be judged, however we want to understand that, but also so that we're ready to celebrate. Mm. We should be always in a posture of readying the world to celebrate the coming of God. Hopefully when He comes, He will find us uh, already celebrating together.
1: I think we're coming full circle back to the original conversation about what does Advent mean, right? Mm. We're talking about Mm. um, anticipation and preparedness. And we talk about, uh, as you said, Phil, you know, being ready, being attentive, being intentional. All of those things are required in order for us to have hope or an expectation or an anticipation of something. There has to be preparedness, right? It has to be part of the deal if you're actually going to enjoy that experience or have that experience at all. Yeah. I like to think the idea that everybody is
2: continuing the work while they wait, the expectation seems to be that we are to do the work God has given us to do. And if you think about Jesus's sort of last directive to the disciples, it was to be his witness to the ends of the earth. So I would go even a little further And say that not only do we prepare for that amazing hospitality, but we also go into those places that we are not expected and maybe not invited and live and love in such a way that it shows the love of Christ. So we go out beyond what is traditionally thought of as the church and show those that loving Christ this way and living this way is the right action and the right way to be prepared in this sort of liminal space that we're living in.
3: I think that's a good clarification, Sarah. The hospitality that we prepare, if one wants to go with that metaphor, is not that's not just about keeping our church building hospitable or our church community hospitable or our personal sphere hospitable. Well, yes, like going forth, sharing the love of God, In a way that makes the whole world uh, reflect that hospitality for all people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think being relevant, right, Phil, and telling the truth in love. You know, one of the dangers is that we see the church as the building and the people in the building. And it's one thing to preach the gospel in a congregation of people who know you and you know them to some extent, but it is a lot more dangerous. Right. For us to actually speak the truth in love in places where we may, as you said, Sarah, be welcome or unwelcome and not to shy away from that. Right. But to be as truthful and truth telling in that environment as we are within our churches, that is a practice of being radically hospitable, I think.
0: When I got the place where I live now, I made sure I had an extra bedroom because I know that living in Sioux Falls, which is the big city, and then my relatives who live on the reservation or whatever, my aunt, she has cancer. So she needs to come for her cancer treatment. Guess where she's going to stay, either with my mom or with me or my my cousins or whatever. It's like, and I I always sort of have that room ready and the sheets on there clean. So if they come, it's just there. And in fact, one of my cousins who was escaping domestic violence situation, I didn't know when she would come. She actually came in the middle of the night and was like, I'm at the grocery store. Can you come get me? I was like, yeah, it was ready for I didn't have to stress out about making the bed or anything. It was just there.
3: One other thing I'm noticing in this gospel passage in terms of us coming full circle back to our earlier conversation is that if you're attentive to the creation imagery, the time of day, when does Jesus show up? In the dark. And so yet again, here's a, another point of engagement and reflection on how darkness can be the place of greatest promise and possibility and potential for the good. So just a, another, another way to weave that in if, if a preacher were, were wanting to explore those themes.
1: I think also if we're going to look at the suffering and the pain in the world as a dark space for that experience of God not being present. That's sort of that same imagery can also be used. Those metaphors can all be woven together.
0: What uh, liturgical ideas do you have for Advent? I know a lot of people do like candles and wreaths and stuff, but what liturgical ideas or even for specifically, it could be for Advent or maybe for this Sunday specifically.
1: I'm leaning towards using the women's lectionary again during Advent and the focus on women and Creation and anticipation, expectation, all of those things, and really allowing ourselves more to lean in the what sometimes is referred to as our female sense.
3: Mm-hmm. I know the parish at which I have recently come to serve is one that has a longest night service. Folks are familiar with those, they're usually done around the the winter solstice time, so just just in advance of Christmas, the liturgy that we will have here for that is very much done primarily in the darkness with some candlelight, uh, with healing prayers, with silence, and I'm very much looking forward to that. That's not a liturgy I've been part of in other communities I've served, so excited to see how some of the themes that we've explored here today might take on a sort of infleshed reality in that liturgical space. So if others listening out there have never explored a longest night service, that's one other thing that you could add to your Advent season this year, hmm. especially because longest night services, I think, are designed to engage with truth-telling in the reality of suffering and pain in the midst of a season that can often feel sort of jarringly positive positive. Mm -hmm. And so giving people a space to grieve or to lament or simply to wonder about the big difficult questions that they are facing amidst all the holiday cheer, I think can actually be a really healing, healing opportunity for people.
0: We do it as a blue Christmas. I think we, something similar.
1: I love the longest night idea also, Phil, because around the solstice.
0: What ideas or tips or suggestions do you have for preaching this lectionary? And just what I've heard from us talking, the thing that I was really excited about was this idea of clay. And as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the challenges of the clay, like how The towns that I've had in life might be times when I've been fired as the clay or when I've been glazed as the clay. And you might go in not looking brilliant, but when you come out of the fire, it is very brilliant. Maybe playing around with some of that and the idea that we are always still moldable.
3: Yeah, I think the clay metaphor is a powerful one and an evocative one that one could use for preaching. This conversation around light and dark could be a very helpful and fascinating way to start off the Advent season with preaching, to explore those themes and and again, how they are reflected in the changing seasons around us, depending on the environment and context in which we live and serve. That could be particularly helpful. Whatever approach the preacher takes, I think Advent, it's a wonderful season to preach through the senses to preach through vivid imagery and the ways in which we find our spirituality captured in images of the world around us. So I do think that this is a great opportunity to bring people into a sense of the, the sights and sounds and emotions of the season, maybe versus just a, a very sort of strict theological academic sort of approach to the season. This is a moment and the depth of these texts and the longing and the hope that is contained within these particular texts, I think, really lend themselves. If you're thinking about going deep, this is a really good and opportune time for you to try to do so.
2: Yeah, and I, I really like the idea that we discussed earlier about holding the tension between current suffering and the reward that is to come and really acknowledging that and allowing people to live into that tension, but also preaching that gospel of hope. I think, especially when you talked about the the longest night service or the blue Christmas services, those are a really beautiful time to acknowledge those folks for whom, Advent is powerful in that it allows them some opportunity of lament because the rest of the world is festive, and we don't necessarily start out festive in the Episcopal Church, which is beautiful.
1: Wow. Well, we gathered a whole bunch of notes from this particular conversation that I'm certainly going to be using. I think about holding your breath and that exhale that Sarah talked about, I think, was particularly one of those things. And then, Phil, I think when you were also referring to our expectations, you know, the pain and the suffering, and the pain and suffering together, the meaninglessness, those uh, references, I think, need to also be part of preaching. And as I said, I will most likely, again, use the opportunity to redeem the darkness And maybe with what we ended up saying that when did Jesus come again? The second coming was in the dark.
0: It just now dawned on me. I haven't ever thought about this before, but like in sweat lodges, we often do four rounds and there's four weeks of Advent. And so I wonder what it would look like if I sort of modeled. I'm going to have to talk to our native congregation about that. If we modeled each week of Advent as one of the rounds? Like in the first round, it's a lot of protocol that you do. Like you like the pipe, the certain songs that you sing. It's all very like, this is, you know, we're going to do the, very liturgical let's say and then the second round might be like praying for things you know people who need prayers and things like that and the third it'd be interesting to see what that would look like this year christmas eve also falls on advent four so what are you churches doing like are you doing like a service that morning plus doing like quote-unquote midnight mass My congregation always does midnight mass at like the middle. Like they're like, we're going to do midnight mass at 7 p.m. I was like, that's not midnight mass. That's 7 p.m. So are you doing the like early and evening or are you going to do Sunday morning and Christmas morning? What are folks doing?
1: We're going to do Advent 4 on Sunday and Christmas Day principal service on Monday. Okay. I have an older congregation, which I think is pretty common Mm -hmm. in the Episcopal Church, and they don't want to come out at night.
3: We're a parish that usually has two services on a Sunday morning, but this year we will just have one service on that Sunday morning of Advent 4, and then we will have two evening services, one an earlier family service, if you will, and then a late night service. I love the late night service, absolutely understand the practicalities of folks who feel uncomfortable uh, making that trip at night. But back to our conversations about the darkness, how beautiful that Christmas service and all the beauty of the incarnation reveals itself to us liturgically in the darkness. That is one of the most powerful moments of the year. I'm very much looking forward to it.
2: The parish I attend will do a similar thing, Phil, with one service instead of two for Advent 4, which will be a slightly modified Advent 4, and then two Christmas Eve services and a simple Christmas morning lessons and carols.
1: One thing you said, Phil, uh, reminds me also that we may not have an evening, late night Christmas Eve service, but there are churches in Tucson that are, and I go to them.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do the same thing I'll do like the congregation I serve is about 45 minutes away and I usually drive down to the cathedral in time for their like later one well thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and time with me and with all of the guests who listen Uh, I know they love and appreciate this so thank you so much thank you for
3: having us Shaniqua
1: yes this was wonderful Phil it's good to see you Sarah thank you so much and Shaniqua thanks for inviting me
3: Yes,
2: this was a a great experience. Thank you so much.
0: If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved community. Thanks to our guests, Sarah, Debbie, and Phil. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you experienced hope in listening today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
1: if you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.